the lean-in movement as a mantra is problematic and it has been facing a backlash recently because of so many things can hold us back. But I don't think we should give in to the idea that the motherhood penalty is deterministic and that having a child means letting go of your career. Welcome to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross, for the second instalment of my conversation with Melissa Hoganboom, BBC science journalist and author of The Motherhood Complex. For those of you who didn't catch part one last week, I highly recommend that you tune in. Melissa's book is the inspiration for this interview, and it is a raw and personal expose of motherhood, womanhood, and all its associated challenges, biases, and prejudices. In these conversations, I want to give these issues more oxygen and lay a very small platform for change. So there's both historical context here, but we're also raising questions and proposing solutions towards a more equal future in which women are better supported by society at large, which is a diplomatic way of saying men. Now, to bring you up to speed, last week we addressed motherhood and sacrifice, gender biases, matrescence, the mum brain, and expectations of perfection. Today, we're kicking off with the good mother stereotype, the lean-in movement, the prohibitive cost of childcare, maternal gatekeeping, the motherhood penalty, the secrecy of miscarriage, and women's cognitive labour load. You can find my own personal account on fatherhood on a aloadofbs.substack.com, so I'd love you to read it in accompaniment to these conversations, and of course, share with me your own experiences. Now, before we start today, I want to mention my sponsor, as usual, of a load of BS, and that is Crankwheel. They're from Iceland originally, and they are as cool as ice, these guys. They're sweeping up new clients like nobody's business, and pardon me, and as more of us get Zoom fatigue and want simpler ways to engage virtually with colleagues, these are the guys to turn to. Now, some people have the ability to paint a picture in a few words. Crankwheel is for the rest of us mere mortals. They give you a zero friction screen sharing experience during voice calls. You simply send a link to the person on the other end of the line and they enter that seamlessly on any browser or any device. There's no need to log in or register. It's that simple. Now, it's particularly great for those sort of sales calls or when you're onboarding new customers. It's really for any business who's looking to engage with customers in a friendlier, more efficient manner. So I'm really delighted to be supporting the guys and I wish them every success as they grow. Now, you guys as a load of BS subscribers can use Crankwheel Unlimited for two months by signing up at get.crankwheel.com forward slash load of BS. Now, enjoy the show. You do reference a non-Western culture, it may be a remote tribe whose name escapes me, where the concepts of learning, school and work blend into each other far more smoothly. And it perhaps seems natural to us that, you know, kids from a young age leave the house and go to school and parents either stay at home or go to work. And that just seems the obvious <laughs> the obvious way that we live and work. But in other cultures, of course, it's not the case. It's sort of quite fascinating to see how these sorts of discrepancies. But thinking about, you know, touching on other cultures, who else we can can learn from. And you talked about this sort of idea of the good mother stereotype. How do we escape this sort of stereotype of the good mother who does the majority of childcare without much help, without destroying our own culture? Are there other things that we can adopt from elsewhere to change? 
I think it has to come with a many-tiered approach. There has to be an acknowledgement that we can't do it all. If a woman are working, which in this country, the majority do, we can't be a perfect worker and a perfect mother. Those are kind of two ideals that clash. Um, you can't do full-time childcare and all the enrichment activities that someone who stays at home does while also working full-time and trying to maintain a career and going up the career ladder. And if you look at the graphs of the gender pay gap or when women stop earning as much as men, it's literally usually in the 30s when they have children. Um, it has to come from at home. So if there's more equality at home, if women aren't taking on most of the cognitive labor, so this is the mental load, this is not just the doing, but the thinking about doing, that leaves more time for other activities and it has to come from society. So in this country and especially in the US as well, there is so little value given to caring. Women and unpaid labor is seen as a necessary force in the way capitalism works. Without the unpaid labor of women, our society wouldn't function. Carers here are not paid well, yet childcare is astronomical. I mean, nurseries in London can be £20,000 a year. Nannies are obviously much more expensive once you have two children that's more than the average salary. So just by that kind of cost, it can literally push women out of work because if you childcare costs are more than your ingoings, it just doesn't make financial sense or you just can't get by. In a lot of other countries, you see uh, a lot more support, lots of benefits, much cheaper childcare, and that literally pays for itself. That's why the economics of it, I mean, you probably know more than me about this, but if you think about like if women are being pushed out of the workforce, that's a tax that's not going back to the government. And it's it's probably, I think some people have, some economists have done the maths on this. If more women wanted to work, weren't being pushed out of the workforce and childcare was subsidized, there would be more money. So it just kind of reprioritization needs to occur that, you know, family life and work life can go hand in hand, but it has to be valued and it has to be supported. Women, if they're judged when they become pregnant as less competent and capable, given less opportunities for promotion, flexible work isn't valued. If you do do flexible work, you kind of like, seen as less likely to want to get ahead, then all these forces at play, so coupled with the home life, the self-expectations, the perfectionism, will impact our idea of what a good mother is. So if we kind of keep talking about this and reframe our understanding, put ourselves first on a personal front and be more open about our caring responsibilities, and this has to come from men as well, because otherwise it will still be women that are seen as the primary carers, then I think we can start reframing it. And I think it's happening. So like writing about it, talking about it, you inviting me on this podcast, I think all those things are going to slowly make a difference, but it will take time. Like sociologists refer to a phenomenon called a structural lag. And it literally means that even though the idea of equality is on people's minds, people want it to happen. Many people talk about wanting to happen. It will take time for those ideals to filter up um, and it requires kind of policy help as well. I mean, in the background to this is actually the dichotomy, I think that you highlighted at the start, you know, that between intentions and actions in terms of taking equal responsibility for childcare and something I've been definitely been guilty of because, you know, men and society at large may now believe that parenthood is far more equal. Men may intend to take on more of the load and recognize that there are massive gender imbalances, but somehow despite best intentions, the pressures of a still very gendered world mean that 
that they don't actually match real action. I imagine that you've experienced this sort of cognitive dissonance in your own world and probably in the process of writing the book. Absolutely. It's ever present. And I'm always keen to point out that it is often a societal infrastructure that contributes to this very heavily. So we know that men tend to be higher paid than women. Men work longer hours than women. And so, of course, over time, that means that women will be at home more and doing more at home. And this starts on maternity leave. If you are at home for six months to a year, you are the one doing all the childcare and you know where, the, on a very basic level, you know where the nappies are, what shoes the child needs. And you're the one packing for holidays because you know where the clothes are. And it doesn't seem to be a handover when women go back to work. And so then there's this like very gendered home life that if the men are working longer hours, they literally have less time. And if they're expected to, because so much of getting ahead is, you know, seen to be present or doing long hours, then the imbalance doesn't shift. And there's, there's studies that show that when you ask partners who's doing more at home, there is often not only like an actual imbalance, but an imbalance of belief. So men will say they think they're doing more than the women think they're doing. And often when I wrote a piece about the hidden load, it went viral. And so many men wrote to me and said, wow, I didn't realize this was going on, or you've explained why this is going on. And that's because so much of the work is the thinking behind the work and just being the one that's thinking about the childcare or half term or noting when half term is being the one that's called first when there's a doctor or there's a doctor's appointment. So unless something's done end to end, so it's no good taking your daughter out on a play date if you haven't planned it because the planning still takes time. It's a text or organization. And so being aware of the tasks end to end, like in at home, I said to my husband, I don't want to be the one always thinking about half terms. Our daughter's now at school. So every half term, we're like, oh no, it's half term again. And someone has to think about that and organize childcare before it. And it was always me. And then he's always like, oh, when's half term again? And I also don't want to be the one reminding you about it because that's an additional step. So when women are like the project managers at home, and like when you look at the studies about this, you literally have very kind of high earning career competent men that are perhaps project managing at work that say, oh, well, you know, my wife's better at all that sort of thing or she's, you know, the project manager of the household. And it's not that she's better at it. She's done more over time. And the more you do, the more you then end up doing. But then tied into that, there's a phenomenon known as maternal gatekeeping. And this is where most people will probably recognize this. So in most couples, there's someone who's better at cooking. And so it can be easier to do it yourself than hand over. And so if you're better at something because you've done it more, so like knowing which clothes to buy or dressing your child because you know where the outfits are and what matches. And so if the husband dresses the child and it's all mismatched, the woman might be like, oh, well, I'll just do it next time. That's fine. That's called maternal gatekeeping. It's keeping a task. And then that demotivates the other half as well from doing it because then they think, oh, well, I'm not doing it. I can't do it right. Um, so it's also comes back to letting go of those imperfections, which is difficult, right? Because we know that women are judged on their house and the way their children look and are in the world, whereas men are. So if a man brings a child to school and they're mismatched, they might be like, oh, cute, daddy dressed her. If a woman does the same, she might be judged. So it's these deep ingrained beliefs that tie into this. So maternal gatekeeping isn't something necessarily conscious. I've definitely done it before when my husband's chopping carrots and he takes long. I'm like, oh, I might as well just do it. But if I keep doing that, then he'll never get better at it. And so being aware that these things are going on and talking about it is so important because then you can divide it. And then if it is gendered at home, that can be fine. But understanding that and understanding that you're okay with it rather than being resentful, because there is evidence to show that when there's a mismatch on 
what people are doing at the home, it can literally lead to divorce because that just builds up conflict over time and resentment. And we know also that parents are less happy than non-parents and all of these reasons play in. I've seen in others, you know, gatekeeping actually on both sides, not only on the mother's sides, can be extremely damaging in a relationship. I mean, certainly, I mean, just to pick up on your point about project planning, you talk about this in four stages in the book, but I think in summary, it's the thinking, it's the anticipation, which is far more laborious than the actual doing in summary. But we've talked a little about the workplace. And if we're talking about identity changes, of course, one place where it's felt most acute is the workplace. And so you talk in the book about the motherhood penalty, which is actually a term that sociologists have coined to describe what the negative impacts on career and earnings identified as soon as we become mothers. And without diving sort of into that, because I think we have an approximate intuitive sense of what's going on there. And I'm sure, you know, most women who've become mothers have experienced in some way. But I wanted to connect that to the lean in movement, which you also talk about in the book. Do you think that the lean in movement is still strong? Or is there a recognition that actually for most women, taking their career in their own hands and having it all is just simply not at all realistic? It's difficult for me to answer that question because so much depends on your employer, which I think is tricky. So I think lean in in general is something that can set you up for failure. So if you have a very high paid job and you have the financial possibility of outsourcing a lot of the kind of caring work, and I'm, you know, I'm talking about nannies or cleaners, something that quite privileged few can manage. And then it's very possible to maintain long hours required of a very, not necessarily fulfilling, but a very kind of high profile career. But I think for kind of an average person on average pay, there just isn't the possibility to do that. And then if you're sold this idea that just by leaning in, by doing a little bit more work, you can get ahead, it just sets you up for failure, I think. But that said, if you have a supportive employer who recognizes the value you bring and you are not faced with a motherhood penalty, that is, you're not seen as less competent or less likely to be able to do your job or less reliable when you become a mother, if they understand the need for flexible hours and there isn't an overwork culture, I think you can absolutely have a fulfilling career and be able to be the care you want. And for me, I mean, it, the truth is it does come down to good quality childcare. Like I feel like I am able to pursue my career like right on the side, do a full-time job because I feel very happy with my childcare situation. I know my children are happy when they're there. So I don't feel guilty for working full time because then I also feel I can give more to them when I am off. But it is stressful, right? There's the pickups, there's drop-offs, there's feeling like you have to make up for it at weekends. As your children get older, they can vocalize that they don't want to go to school or childcare or holiday camps. Then you feel bad for that because they always say they prefer to be at home. But when they're at home, they become whiny and annoying. And so it's a bit of a long way to answer your question. I think the lean-in move movement as a mantra is problematic and it has been facing a backlash recently because of so many things can hold us back. But I don't think we should give in to the idea that the motherhood penalty is deterministic and that having a child means letting go of your career. I mean, a friend of mine, when she was pregnant, she literally said, oh yeah, I've waited a while to tell them just because I know as soon as I do, they're going to give me less exciting projects. I'm like, that's just outrageous. She's like, yeah, but that's just how it is. And she just came to terms with it. And that's an issue, right? Like it's an issue that how pregnancy is perceived and that's how we perceive it ourselves so that's why I think the talking about it the being if you're a manager being understanding and being aware of these forces at play as a manager myself now I'm like super heightenedly aware of when someone has caring responsibilities and just giving them the understanding that that matters and that's okay and that I trust them to do their job around whatever needs they have and so yeah it's a complicated question because there's so many variables that aren't in your control but I think 
if you are ambitious early on, knowing that you can fulfill those ambitions will certainly help. And I think that's why women are delaying parenthood for so long, because they want to be in a good financial position when they do become parents so that they can, you know, pay for the childcare they need and not drop out of the workforce. Because even if you want to be at home for however many years when your children are young, it then means it's impossible to come back. Because if you have a gap in your CV, it's much harder to get a job at a comparable level. And so the element of choice is often taken away as well, which is quite sad. And as we talk about the side effects and the byproducts of motherhood, one subject which you did raise briefly earlier are the depressions both pre and post and you know there are of course extremely serious side effects that come with pregnancy in fact about a quarter of pregnancies miscarry most of those in the first trimester and that's of course the time when most women keep their pregnancy a secret and i wonder to what extent do you think this kind of whole idea of secrecy is just really another way in which women are repressed I think hugely. I mean, it's a biological change that is sometimes most abrupt in the first 12 weeks. And yet that is when you're expected to not tell people because you don't want to give it away too early. And the most reason people don't want to tell is because they want to make sure the baby's healthy come 12 weeks. But if the pregnancy doesn't continue and there's a miscarriage, that's a huge mental challenge and psychological stress that you then, if you haven't told anyone, you have to carry it alone. So I think it has to be personal decision rather than kind of a societal rule that you shouldn't tell people because some people then you know do need that support most people need that support when it happens and I think you're right it does tie to the fact that so much of a woman's biology is kind of owned by someone else like the limited options you have in telling people and then if it happens you know like there's very few people you want to share it with because you then don't it's such a fraught issue but I think it is changing luckily I see people talking about miscarriages more people mentioning it being open about the fact they had it, about how horrendous it was. So I think that's just another conversation that kind of ties into that feeling of motherhood identity that needs to be talked about because it's such a huge change. And I think another linked issue is that there's so much expectation of being a mother as a woman, especially when you reach a certain age, that once you tell someone you've had a miscarriage, then there is the expectation that you're going to try again. And I think that can be quite difficult psychologically if you know that, you know, someone's expecting and then when are you going to tell people if you're going to tell people? And it's why I no longer ask people if, or I haven't for a long time, if they're planning to have a second, if they're planning at all, because you don't know what's going on. And it's such a personal question asking about someone's biological choices, yet it seems to be open for public debate. Oh, like the amount of time I've been asked if I'm having a third, I'm like, hang on, I've only just had a second and you don't know what's going on. You don't know if someone's been trying for a year or two years, if they've had a miscarriage. So asking that simple question actually can unlock a lot of mental anguish. So I think it's something we have to be sensitive about, but give people the choice if they want to talk about it, it should be okay to talk about it. You are listening to A Load of BS with me, Daniel Ross, and my guest, Melissa Hoganboom. I want to give a shout out at this point to a series of podcasts which I personally love and rate highly for their breadth and consistently high quality of conversation with people leading extraordinary lives. And that's the How To Academy podcast, a show for people who love big ideas. Each week they host world-renowned thinkers, leaders, artists and entrepreneurs in conversation for a deep exploration of their life and work. 
from President Clinton to Prime Minister Gordon Brown, novelists such as William Gibson, Isabel Allende, Elizabeth Gilbert and Ian McEwan, environmental activist Jane Goodall, psychologist Steven Pinker, and actor and model Emily Ratajkowski. It's a feast for anyone interested in improving themselves and the world. It's of course available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, so I really encourage you to give it a go. Now in the second half of the show today we'll be discussing pre and postnatal depression, the positive and negative effects of technology on family life and the impact of writing her book on Melissa's life. That's Melissa's book The Motherhood Complex, the impact on her life. Now on with the show. For, for what it's worth, when I or we get asked that question or equivalent, my answer is, you will be the first to know, don't worry, we will be messaging you as soon as news comes through. I know it's obviously very front of your mind, our childcare plan. I'll send you the scan, the gender, any other information that you want, keep you very much in the loop. Thank you for poking your nose in where it wasn't wanted. Um, of course, depressions then could be such extremely common for women, both pre and postnatal. Sometimes these can't be anticipated. You touch on this in the book, sometimes there's no rhyme or reason for why it comes. I wanted to maybe focus that question then onto the partner, whether that's husband or otherwise, and how the partner can better facilitate these transitions, either as women move into the early stages of pregnancy or indeed are working through the aftermath. How do partners better support the mother? What sort of signs should they be looking out for? How do they spot the signs of depression early and help manage it? I think the main thing is to just be as present as possible, to take as much away that if the mother is breastfeeding just something as simple as doing all the nappies I had a c-section and then a lengthy hospital stay and so I wasn't able to change nappies so my husband was like right I know this is what I can do so for three weeks I literally I barely knew how to change a nappy for three weeks that was something he could own he could take control of he was on top of everything in the house made sure everything was clean and tidy he did everything that he could that I wasn't able to do so I, I literally all I had to do was focus on the baby so that was a huge help for me and in terms of noticing the signs I think it's again it comes back to communication like making sure that the right processes are in place is the health visitor coming around like if you're feeling down is it just the baby blues the kind of the hormonal drop after a few days or is it longer I mean if you are lucky enough to be in a couple if by the time you have a baby you hopefully know each other and so understanding the difference between just sleep deprivation and just kind of not feeling like you want to get dressed all day so I think it's really difficult if you're the woman's on her own all day and once the partner goes back to work which often happens after two weeks here in the UK and so I think just picking up on the signs of natural sleep deprivation I mean there was days I didn't get dressed and it was lovely but I felt like myself and I was you know quite happy to see my husband when he came back but I think if you notice that someone is consistently down that's really when to you know ask the right questions see if they're getting the right support and then get the support early on speak to your GP talk about it be sure that they know that this is an actual like serious difference rather than just feeling tired because it is difficult to understand the differences between the two because there's so much tiredness and obviously tiredness is linked to depression so there's this kind of circular effect but I, hopefully the signs should become clear and just understanding what the symptoms are as well so low mood 
tearful, irritable, angry, suicidal thoughts as well. If you're having difficulty bonding with the baby and it's so common. So I think just everyone being more mindful of this and it is asked at healthcare visits, but it does seem sometimes like a bit of an afterthought, like, how are you feeling? I don't think when you speak to a stranger, you're necessarily going to share those type of things straight away. So I think just being aware of what support is available and when to talk about what help you need. As soon as you mentioned nappy changing, it triggered the quotation, the reference in the book about Jacob Rees-Mogg, who said that he had never changed a nappy in his life. Any mention of his name in relation to something like this always has a good effect on increasing the adrenaline coursing through one's system in a very negative way. And one can't help obviously making something of a value judgment on him if any further value judgments were needed. But anyway, that's a very subjective view. I want to talk about technology before the end, because you know the internet and social media specifically has positive and negative effects on most aspects of our lives. But how have they affected parenting for better and worse? There's a term that I really love that I came across when I was researching this called technoference. So it's like the interference of technology on family life. And I think there's two things we need to be aware of. One is technology is here. And so we can't ignore the fact that everything we do often requires technology from our weekly shop to planning a play date. So we need to understand when it's helpful, when it's harmful. So it's been hugely supportive for new mothers to have, say, WhatsApp groups and people they can contact in the night. And there's evidence to show that a woman have felt more connected with their new motherhood identity when they can talk about it with someone else. But when you see mobile phones present during mealtimes or you are on your phone at the expense of interacting with your child, when you're talking with your infant, and you're bonding with them, your brain will be aligning with hers. There's evidence to show that when you're you know, having a meaningful interaction, you can literally, if you monitor your brain and hers at the same time, you're in sync with each other. If you put a phone in the middle, that sync disappears. So if you, you know, now and again, that's fine. But if you multiply that over a long period of time, it you know, might cause a relationship between you and your child to decline. So I think just knowing that technology is around and it's okay to use it, not being too scared of it, but understanding that quality time and kind of meaningful interactions and conversations is so important and understanding that children learn best from interactions with real human beings some fun studies during the pandemic showing that children can learn from screens but if there is a human interactive element so if it's on a video call they can still learn but best is in person but the fact that they could learn on an interactive video call was like hugely helpful i think because so many people were spending more time talking to loved ones and it you know it can have a benefit and can be a teacher moment. So I think it's really harmful to say that screen time is bad and screen time is terrible and, you know, it's all going to cause our children's brains to turn into much less. The evidence does not show that, but it all comes down to a balance and just making sure that time on screens or family time isn't being disrupted too heavily or screens aren't taking over, you know, otherwise activities that you should be doing otherwise, like spending time outside, being part of nature, you know, communicating. So it kind of, I think an awareness of it and having a balance is really important. Another side of, of course, you refer to these terms, which I don't know whether you created or others, but sharenting and mumfluencers, oh uh, which seem yeah. to refer to some of the sort of more negative sides. I mean, by the way, this phenomenon, I think, exists well beyond motherhood and parenting and is a sort of a phenomenon of social media bragging and sharing, which has, I think, some nefarious effects, but probably quite prevalent in the world of motherhood. 
Yeah, sharenting. So there was a study that found that children before their age of two have a social media presence. So hundreds of children don't have the figure to hand. But it's the idea that we're posting children on the internet without our consent. And I think lots of people are becoming aware that that's problematic. I mean, for safeguarding reason, as well as, you know, like not having their own autonomy or be able to choose. And then also the kind of mumfluencer. So there's so many influencers who are now parents who are posting about their perfect life and what they do. And we know that this doesn't reflect reality. And they might even say it in like a really deep, meaningful, heartfelt post, but we still kind of see that ideal motherhood perfectionism played out on the screen. And you see hashtags like mummy life or feeling so blessed or my little blessings. And that just kind of reinforces the idea that a family should be perfect or that there's so much that we might be doing wrong if we're having a stressful time. And I just think it's that juxtaposition of that kind of perfect picture with our own life can be really damaging and there's so much of it and as soon as you get kind of click on one hashtag more stuff comes up and like the algorithm works in such a clever way that when I'm on like say Instagram most of what I see is like pregnancy and motherhood and I can't help but get drawn into it and even though I'm aware of the psychology behind it and the damaging nature of it and I know that it doesn't necessarily reflect reality I still find myself being kind of drawn into those things and I think that's only going to increase luckily I'm also seeing a trend of the more realistic type images talking about, you know, why you're feeling tired or why you need time out or why you're kind of overstimulated or feeling touched out. So I think the two are going hand in hand, but it's kind of ironic, I guess, that they're clashing with each other, even in the same social networks. Maybe we should start a new Instagram channel full of pictures of dirty nappies, rashes, vomit, food all over the floor, you know, real stuff. Indeed. Um, Yeah, I wonder if people would like that or not. Yeah, I wonder if it would catch on. Going back to cultural influences, which I meant to ask, which is a bit of a non sequitur, but was reflecting on a study which you referenced in the book by UNICEF, which was a report on family-friendly policies amongst top European and OECD countries. There's often things that not only about motherhood, but other aspects of our sort of welfare policies, both here and in the US, that are rather kind of backward. Because in that report, in terms of kind of culture, behavior and values, both the UK and the US rank bottom or close to bottom of this report. I mean, what on earth does it say about where we live and across the pond? That there's something rather sort of third worldish about actually the way we think about looking after mothers and their welfare. Yeah, it was really shocking, really. And a lot of it tied back to paid parental leave and universal childcare or like subsidized childcare. And I think out of the top OECD countries, fewer than half provided six months of paid maternity leave. Average was about 18 weeks, I think. And so if you're in a society where there is little paid maternity leave, very little affordable childcare, then obviously that kind of is putting families last again and it will feed into the motherhood penalty, motherhood issues, which is why I always talk about that it has to come from societal change. So it's no sense of lots of people on the ground wanting equality if society is not helping people get there. And so it's really tricky because the well-being and literal financial well-being as well of a, a country can be helped if families are less stressed and following jobs that they feel that they can give you know their full selves to. Let me ask you a final question and then we'll do the quick fire. How have you changed since writing the book? What's been its impact on your life? I have definitely felt like my experience have been explained and validated and it's really empowered me. So I feel like I I still think the motherhood complex is a real thing, but I don't feel it as much. 
So I feel like I've owned my motherhood identity. I write in the book that initially I was worried about talking about the fact that I was writing about motherhood because I felt I wouldn't be taken seriously as a science journalist. I've now gone the other way and I've because I've been writing about it and because I've been understanding the processes at play, I feel able to mention it. I used to never post, you know, about anything about my child on like, say, Twitter. I don't post anything personal, but like just an anecdote or such. I now do that. I write articles about it at work. I talk about it at meetings. If I have to leave early, I mention it. And I think that's the kind of thing that is important in a workplace for myself and my own well-being. So I'm not secretly parenting, kind of hiding my caregiving responsibilities. Also for the people I work with, so for the more junior staff, so they know that it's okay to, you know, work flexibly and put yourself first. So I think that level of validation, ownership and empowerment actually has really helped. It's been a real personal journey, I think, but it's been really amazing. No, great. Own it confidently and set the right example. Absolutely. Great. Shall we do some quick fire to wrap up? Yeah, go for it. Yes is the right answer. Yes. (laughs) Okay. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? I think it was when I had an extended hospital stay, the amount of people who rallied round and brought mattresses, food hampers, cards, flowers. So it was like a collective thing, but I really felt like I had a community and I felt looked after. Great. What's your most powerful memory? I think it'd be cycling as a five-year-old away on my bike with a friend sitting on the back on a Dutch bike outside of our residential area to go pick blackberries, um, like a couple of miles away without my mum knowing. And then the police were called to look for us. (laughs) Nice one. Nice. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. I'm a black belt in karate. Oh, very good. Which book, I'm going to say probably accepting yours, but you could answer with your own one. Which book do you gift most regularly? Since this week, it's going to be The Expectation Effect by David Robson, who's a friend and colleague, and his book's just killing it right now. He's brilliant. It's, it's so good. It's completely changed my idea of like exercise and medicine. Awesome. Nice recommendation. Penultimately, what's your Desert Island music? Oh, it would be Anything by the Eels. Okay. And finally, winding down away from work, however you want to define work or other responsibilities, tell me a bit more about your hobbies. I go running three or four times a week and then I like writing in the evenings. Okay. What do you write about in the evenings? My next book proposal. (laughs) Aha, there we go. There's the ultimate dot for another conversation. Can you talk about a high level, the theme of your next book? It's going to touch on themes of creativity and independence. Fantastic. Look, and with that, Melissa, let me thank you hugely for joining me today. You've shared so much insight on the hard and messy reality of being a mum, and you've made it very personal, which I hugely appreciate and respect. The Motherhood Complex, by the way, is a book I wish I'd read far sooner in my parenthood journey. I think it would have helped me understand my wife's experience, let's say, in multicolor rather than in monochrome. And so I wholeheartedly recommend any current parent or parent-to-be to buy and read the book immediately. And will undoubtedly be a better parent and partner for it. So, Melissa, thank you very, very much. Thanks so much for your great questions. My great pleasure. And that's the end of my two-parter with Melissa Hoganboom. I'll say it again. Over the course of these two conversations, we've covered so many major themes like gender bias, parental behaviours, and how society treats women, knowingly or otherwise. And I really suggest you buy her book to understand it all more richly. Now next week we're going to discuss the story and meaning of rituals with pioneering anthropologist and cognitive scientist Dr. Dimitris Zigalatas, who runs the Experimental Anthropology Lab at the University of Connecticut. 
Now, Demetrius has been interviewed about his groundbreaking work by the New York Times, The Guardian, PBS, The History Channel and many other outlets. In fact, if you fancy a taster of Demetrius, and that's not a ritual, by the way, just Google his TED Talks as a starter. Now, beyond building the ritual of listening to a load of BS every week, if you haven't done so already, please go to Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe, follow me, and leave a five-star review. And if you want to read all my articles and those of my guest contributors, do go to a aloadofbs.substack.com and subscribe there. Your support is always appreciated. Be well, until next time.